Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Will. Hey, we just interviewed Hunter Farrell. Oh, it was so good. It was good. Hunter is co-author of Freeing Congregational Mission. It is a wonderful book that I can't wait for people to learn more about. It was a really good interview. It was, and we couldn't cut a single minute of it. Yeah, it did go a little bit longer than normal, but there was just so much good stuff in there. We didn't want to cut any of it out. So what we're going to do is we're just going to jump right in. Let's get to it. Here's Hunter. Hey, Will. Hey, Ashley. I was drinking coffee. You got me mid-coffee sip. Hey, Ashley. Will, I want to introduce you to somebody that I've met all of one time, and his name is Hunter Farrell. And Hunter and I uh, originally got together just because he was writing a book. And for some reason, I think I answered some questions. Somehow I got a list of questions, and I answered those questions and submitted them back. And then several months later, I heard from Hunter saying, hey, I've got like a two-day turnaround on this. Can you look at this for me? And so, Hunter, this is Will. Will, this is Hunter. Hey, Hunter. It is so nice to meet you. Hey, thanks, Will. I've uh, actually listened to your podcast. So uh, I'm in the that august group of folks who are, are aficionados of, uh, of your work. Awesome. Tell me how long you've been in Costa Rica. I have been in Costa Rica since 2003. So almost okay. 20 years now. Yeah, I yeah. started coming here when I was 15 with uh, youth groups from my church, and we can talk more about that later. <laughs> I came for all the wrong reasons, and I think I stayed for the right reason. So uh, we can work through some of that maybe. But yeah, Costa Rica yeah. and the, the church in Costa Rica has been a big part of my life for a very long time. So, yeah. hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's great to meet you. I do want to say right off the bat that Freeing Congregational Mission was one of the most challenging books that I've read, but also one of the most encouraging books that I have read. And I am so excited that we get to talk to you. You know, I I sort of, I take this stuff kind of personally. It's hard for me to read critiques, any critique of short-term missions and not feel like I'm the one being punched in the face. Um, And that's just a personal thing for me to work through. But once I was able to get through the first couple of chapters and realize he's not writing this about me, it's not all about me, and and start to pick up on these sort of hints, these hopeful hints that you were dropping, I thought there's something really good is coming. And man, I was I was right. And I'm so thankful that you have written this book. And I've already recommended it to several team leaders of groups that are coming down to work with us next year and, and will recommend it to every single one of them before they come. So thank you. That's a huge gift to me to be able to give to them. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful to have you here and a little starstruck, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, please. No. In fact, I'm I'm grateful to, to be here in this conversation with you all. 
And I think my biggest qualification, frankly, for writing the book was I've made all the mistakes that I talk about in the book. So um, I think there's a, a fellowship of, uh, of suffering around this where the more we know, we look back and we, we realize, oh, wow, folks were so much more gracious to me than I realized they were being at the moment. Right. So we just we give thanks to God and, um, and can just take the next step together. So I'm, I'm glad to be in that with you all. Amen. My favorite thing was when I when I recommended the book to Will to read first, he said, Hunter's going to hate me. I was on like page 15. And oh. then I, t- I texted Ashley. I was like, Ashley, this is not going to go well. I know where this book is going. And this is not oh. going to be a good interview. Well. But I stu- thank goodness I stuck with it. So I love the fact that, you know, it's, it's so easy for this to be a punching bag. And... It's, it's, I think there are a lot of people have really lazy conversations about short-term missions Mm -hmm. and it's just easy to throw a bunch of stones and then walk away. Like that's all there is to talk about. And so, uh, you know, this is, this is a 200, thank goodness it's a 250 page book instead of a 20 page book. If it was a 20 page book, I wouldn't have liked it very much, but everything that came after why I thought you were going to hate me. It was fantastic. So um, well, I did. I did actually. There's a follow up text message to Ashley. Uh, maybe we can screenshot these and include them in our extra media on the website. Where I said, actually, we may wind up being best friends. So uh, you know, I sense that already. Actually, uh, <laughs> that's that's good stuff. No, it, it's funny. And, and the book. I mean, how to describe it? I was the I was the recipient of. 30 years of mission experience through my church, my denomination, and was blessed by Congolese young people who brought me back into the Church of Jesus Christ. I'd left it uh, in Dallas, Texas, growing up in my teens and came back to it at age 22 as a result of the witness of Congolese Presbyterian. And uh, Peruvians helped me to kind of realign my understanding of mission. Um, So in a sense, I've just kind of been recording wisdom and embody that, try to take that into me and my body and my practice, and then, you know, share that when I can. And at one point in teaching a class, I said, I really should put this together in in some format, like a book, just so it can be in one place and folks can refer to it. So that's, that was the effort to to get this together. So I appreciate uh, praise for it. Yeah, that's kind. I feel like we should rewind (laughs) and and we should introduce Hunter. So Hunter, would you like to just say a few things about who you are? (laughs) Introduce us to you, introduce all of our listeners to who you are. Sure. My name's Hunter Farrell and I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Grew up in a large Presbyterian church there and left the the church in my teens. A uh, wise elder in the church kind of kept tabs on me. And took me to coffee once and said, I, I see that you've given up on the church in North America. I get that. I want to turn you on to the church in Africa. And so sent me, you know, pulled strings and got me to apply for a um, program called uh, Volunteers in Mission. And so I went with the Presbyterian Church to what was then the Republic of Zaire and uh, served for a year. And, to, you know, I don't know how many times we say life changing in this work, but uh, it was it just turned me upside down uh, to recognize the ways that God was working uh, through people in communities in ways that I just had no idea uh, even existed. And as far as me, I, uh, I'm a 
husband and a father to three grown kids who live in different places in the country. And uh, a, we're a family. We spent 10 years in Peru and uh, five years in DR Congo. And mission has shaped our lives and kind of who we are. Uh, all of our kids speak fluent Spanish and they use it in their jobs daily and play that role of connecting groups of folks who wouldn't speak to each other otherwise. I'm a middle child, and so that, that work of connecting, either linguistically or culturally, kind of comes naturally, and I really, uh, that's a space that I thrive in and find a lot of joy in. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit about me. And now you're at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and you're the director of the World Mission Institute. What is that the correct? Did I say yeah, that right? Yeah, World Mission Initiative, yeah. Initiative. And, yeah, and... Um, direct that. And we basically will be sending four groups of about 40 students to four different places out in the world this January. We do a Jan term course called Intercultural Experiential Learning. And uh, it, it's three days of intensive instruction and then 10 days in an intercultural space. And then we follow it up with three days uh, in a kind of intensive reflection. And we use race as a kind of a primary demarcating kind of the line, the line in U.S. society that makes the most difference, more than gender, more than income, more than geographic residence, et cetera. And try to see, you know, what, what can we learn in places like Philippines, Guatemala, Palestine, and come back to the U.S. context and say, where are those lines in our society? Um, and often we, we come to race and have a renewed appreciation for how deep those lines are and and what's to be done about it. So yeah, it's, a, it's real life-giving work. I'm, I'm loving my time here at Pittsburgh Seminary. Why, Hunter, did you write this book? What was the impetus of writing this book? Yeah, great question, Ashley. And I think I'd answer it in two ways. The first, the, the, the initial impetus was to um, bring together some of the learnings that I had learned from Congolese and Peruvian colleagues. And then I worked, I worked as the director of Presbyterian World Mission for the, for the Presbyterian Church USA for 10 years. So that circle expanded greatly to include church leaders from you know, different places in the world. So it was a desire to bring together some of that wisdom to speak to a moment in the U.S. church when I feel like we're facing two crises that we're really unaware of because we've sort of floated with the current so long, we don't see that we've drifted way off course. So the book comes as really a call to reformation in uh, congregational mission. So that was the first impetus. The second came, I, I turned in the first draft to InterVarsity Press and the head of the academic books wrote back and he said, tell me about the anger. <laughs> and I said, like, like, the, like the, the, you know, the wild man in therapy, I said, what anger? <laughs> you know? and, uh, and he said, well, it just, it seems like you're angry at the people that you want to help. Hmm. And so I started focusing on that and I spent a long time thinking about, you know, going a little deeper and, and doing some reflection and some prayer as to what, what was that about? Because, yeah, I, I see that. I, there's an edge to it. And I'm, I, I keep saying, you know, I'm not criticizing, but oh, baby, am I criticizing? <laughs> and so, so what is that about is, you know, I think a helpful pastoral question or a thera therapeutic question. And what I came to realize was, I could kind of look down my nose as a long-term missionary. I could look down my nose at those short-termers as a, someone who studied mission and missiology and all this stuff. 
And yet I was still getting so much wrong. And, and I was, you know, still uh, following the scripts that had been given to me by grandparents' generations. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't examined those scripts that I was carrying around in my backpack in the light of the gospel. And I found that profoundly uh, surprising. And uh, it just really, uh, it really blew me away. And so I realized that I was displacing that anger. I was really angry at myself. Why wasn't I getting it right or getting it better or doing better? And so what that did, I think that helpful question at a critical time just allowed me to uh, be a little more honest with myself. And it really changed the tone, I think, of of the book and uh, Mm -hmm. injected a lot more grace into my heart uh, and to be able to see all of us is on this road together, wherever we are. Some are going to be ahead of me, some are going to be behind me uh, on this path. But all of us, if we can today just take one more step closer uh, towards Jesus Christ in the way of Christ, engaging in this mission in the way of Christ, then that's all I need to do today. That That's it. Um, right. So, um, yeah. So I think that this second level of awareness about the book has been a real gift to me that I had not anticipated. What I found interesting to you is the first time that you and I chatted, or maybe it was Bala and I chatted, you had a different name for this book. You you had originally said that it was going to be three stones make a home. Is that right? That's right. Can you can you talk about the why? Because we we had an original name for our podcast, and it was going to be Mind the Mission Gap, and we changed it to this the Broken Banquet because we thought that that would that actually describes more of what we hope to accomplish through this this uh, this podcast. Hmm. Um. So so why the name change? Uh, the publisher suggested it. <laughs> Um, those so, publishers. Yeah, you know, and, and and they have a much better angle on marketing and, you know, what, what communicates, et cetera, et cetera. So Three Stones Make Home was the original title because as uh, Balakalep, my co-author and myself, put this book together, we realized that it's one thing just to lift up the, the challenges that mission leaders in evangelical mainline Protestant Catholic parishes all over the country are facing. Um, We can describe it, we can critique it, but we have to propose something and look to the heart of of scripture and look to best practices as we see them. And that was part of that survey work that you were a part of, Ashley, to see what are people doing? How are people responding to these challenges? Um, So we focused on three, kind of the three stones of the hearth, the cooking fire, present in you know homes around the world, particularly in rural locations in global north and global south. And the three stones for us were uh, a theology of companionship, a kind of a commitment to cultural humility, and a belief in co-development, uh, which is a new term for a lot of folks, just understands development as a mutual process rather than the colonially informed process that even today, U.S. Agency for International Development, all of the agencies for international development would make us think that these poor, undeveloped nations need to develop in our ways. And so they provide inputs, whether it's money or projects, training, education, et cetera, to bring people up in our way. And um, that's we, we don't see that in gospel healing narratives. We don't see that in, in mission in the way of Jesus. And so we, we raised some questions about that. So those three stones, companionship, cultural humility, and co-development are the three kind of 
foundational stones, if you will, that we want to set the banquet on. We want to cook a meal that everyone can enjoy. And realizing that that hearth in the Chiluba language of South Central Congo, it's called the Diku, D-I-K-U. And the word for family is the people of the hearth. And so there's a sense that, and there's a saying, three stones make a home. That is, mm. with, those, with those three stones, the cooking fire, you, you're, you're cooking now, baby. You got, you got family. People are gathering. You're passing on values to the next generation. You're welcoming the stranger. You're providing for their needs. Hospitality happens. So mm-hmm. that's, um, that to us was really powerful. And, and so we refer to it in the book, but the publishers felt it was better to give folks what the book is kind of more, uh, more directly in the title and subtitle. So that's what we did. Well, I have to tell you that one of the things that that Will and I have found over the conversations that we've had, and we, we've recorded about 10 podcasts or so uh, interviews thus far, three common themes that we have found, companionship, but we've been calling it friendship, faithful friendship, and uh, humility. Humility has come across in every single interview that we've had. And then this idea of mutuality, of of partnership. This how can we how can we bring out the best in the other? The Christ in me sees the Christ in you. How how together can we pull out what is best of us and move forward together and develop together? I feel like maybe that this is the revolution in the missions age. Maybe we are right upon the the cusp of it of changing the mentality of us, and then as a result our local churches can then be changed too. Um, so I, I loved it. Yeah. So what I loved was how often you sort of came back to that word companionship, because what we've talked about so often already is we've talked about relationships. We've talked about faithful friendships. We've talked about partnerships and, and they're all, those all sort of say the same thing but not exactly. And I feel like that word companionship is the best way to sort of encapsulate what all of those other words bring, you know, together mean. And so, I mean, it's already changed sort of my vocabulary just in the last couple of weeks with conversations that I've had with people. And I was just in Alabama for four days and meeting with uh, several of our partner churches. And I used the word companionship more just last weekend than I've probably used it, you know, ever before in talking about what we do. So I just, I loved that. Well, that's great. Uh, And and I, I mentioned in the book, I love friendship and I love partnership. I think those are great and accurate uh, depictions of what what it is we're trying to say in terms of that relationship. I, I guess I hesitated a bit with with friendship. You know, we, we, we friend people and then unfriend them. <laughs> it seems like I, I don't know. That didn't feel like the right word to me. And, and, and the um, partnership. I mean, I work the Presbyterians. We, we swear uh, on partnership. That's kind of the, the big word for our, our, our mission. And oftentimes, though, we couldn't define it. <laughs> We just sort of pasted that label partnership. Oh, Presbyterian's Commission in partnership. But most of our partners, and particularly, I mean, I'm thinking in Spanish and French uh, speaking partners, they would understand partnership as a business relationship. And as long as your interests align with mine, then we're partners. Mm. But when your interests change, you veer off and we're no longer partners. Our Mm. partnership is ended, terminated. I said, that ain't it. So uh, I was looking for... I guess, you know, going back to even to the Latin, that the people that we break bread with, the people that we're in fellowship with, that that space of mutuality that I open when I 
when I sit down at table with you, because I'm, I'm opening myself to you, you may see me in a way that I'm not prepared for because of the added complexity of sharing a meal. And that's God's grace to us. It opens, you know, that gives us a space of, of, of radical mutuality. And I think that's really important for, for mission. Can we talk about that for a minute? Sure. <laughs> because you, you've, you've brought us to the table and you do that several times in the book when you talk about communion. Uh, I, I messaged Ashley at some point. It was like, I can't believe how many times we come back to the table in this book, you know, as an illustration, but I mean, to, that's the whole thing. It's that, what does it mean for us in these missional relationships to acknowledge the fact that we have all been called to the same table and, and what does it do to our relationships with one another when we embrace that and honor that? And I wore out a highlighter on this book and, and I started on page 15, the first time you mentioned communion. And I'm going to, I'm going to probably do this more than once, but I'm going to read this. This is from page 15 of of Freeing Congregational Mission. It says, mission is the place where God's self-offering in Jesus Christ becomes the Eucharistic meal that gathers the people of every community to be fed and sent out to share both their resources and their brokenness in service to God's mission to the world. I mean, that's, that's everything. Like that's, if we can't get that part right, then there's very little that's going to come after that we're going to get right. And, and one of the things that I do with the volunteers that come to work with us in Costa Rica is they usually get here on a Saturday and on Sunday morning, I spend an hour with them while the pastor in the local church is, is preaching an hour long sermon in Spanish that most of our volunteers are not going to understand. Um, so we'll be in the worship service until the sermon happens. And then we go have Sunday school together in English. And one of the things that I talk to them about is communion and what it means for us to be bound to Jesus through his body and blood and to be bound to one another through his body and blood and try and sort of set that table at the very beginning of the week so that everything else we do that week, whatever ways we're involved with the local church, with worshiping together and praying together and having fellowship with one another, all that kind of stuff, it started with the fact that we are bound to Jesus and to one another through communion and have been invited to that table. So um, I just, I mean, every time you mentioned sitting at the table together, it just resonated so deeply with me because that's one of the things that I've been really mindful of, of trying to do in a way to sort of push back on the transactional models that so many churches have fallen into or gotten used to or accidentally wound up doing if we can talk about this other stuff from day one, I think it at least increases our odds a little bit of developing healthy relationships. Yeah. Well, something Ashley said, and um, was it, I think in your dissertation, kind of how we frame mission, how we, how we describe what it is we're doing here in this place together. Right. I think that is critically important. And if, if we have in mind that, you know, I think of it as a round table where we're, all drawn together um, in, with both strengths and weaknesses. You get all my quirks, you get all my uh, insecurities, you get my um, unconfessed sins. You, you get all that when I sit at the table with you, more than you ask for perhaps, but graciously in Christ, uh, I'm all here. 
And that, that to me, the potential of that moment, of that space is just, I mean, that's what changes the world. That's, it's those relationships around the table that become that spreading circle of God's love that they talk about in the Acts of the Apostles. That's, mm-hmm. that, that, that fills my heart and, and, and motivates me to, to, to move forward and to get up from the table and to go with partners into, into the world. Yeah. yeah. It's where we connect best. I'm going to let you keep going. Well, you're I'm, on a I'm, roll. I've got more, Ashley. <laughs> um, so one of the things that has come up in, in other conversations we've had, how do you create bridges between the church members who are supportive of their church's mission efforts, but are, they're never going to go? Um, they're not going to go and visit the church planners in New Zealand. They're not going to go and visit the folks that are doing community development in Uganda. What are some strategies that churches can use so that the person who is contributing uh, financially, contributing through their, you know, their prayers, um, and, and in what other, whatever other ways, how do we make them feel like they are sitting at the table, not just with the missionaries, but with the communities where the missionaries are serving? Because it's easy to, you know, in our context, we're at a two and a half hour flight from Miami. So we get volunteers in and out all the time. So it's easy for me to talk to them about what it means for you to be here with us and for them to take that home with them. But my concern is for the ones who can't or won't come. How do we, how do we make them feel like they're at the table? Beautiful. Yeah. Two, two ideas come to mind. The first is Unfortunately, and this comes from, you know, my generation and my parents and grandparents generation, we're all, I think, very influenced. Our minds have been shaped um, by this legacy of global mission versus local mission, Mm. right? We fund them competitively. Both committees in our larger churches are vying for more dollars to their side. Local mission, you know, the, the, the global mission is remote, exotic fun, colorful, local missions tough because it's not as glamorous and it begins to name some issues. Folks bite back. They don't just receive what we give them with smiles. Uh, suddenly we're talking about issues in our town and that's, that's a harder conversation. So one of the things we try to do in the book is bring together these two worlds, recognizing that God's world is one and everything that we're doing in the global mission thing, we should be able to do in the same ways in local mission, likewise, in local mission into the global scene. So as soon as they walk out of the church, they're in the mission field. We we Mm -hmm. recognize that I think increasingly the missional church movement has seized that and and has really publicized that that insight. Uh, That becomes really important to us. And so if our mission committee is focusing only on Costa Rica, not to take away from Costa Rica and its yeah. potential, its needs, its you know, all the good, good and bad. If we're doing that to the exclusion of what's going on, you know, across the tracks in my town, then I think I think we're missing the boat. And there's a real sensitivity here in Pittsburgh. A lot of our communities on the east side of Pittsburgh say you literally fly over the poorest neighborhoods on your mission trip to Africa, say. And this, uh, a lot of these churches in Pittsburgh have long-standing relationships with African congregations and, and judicatories. 
But there's a deep sensitivity on the part of folks who live on the east side that, wait, you're flying literally over our houses and our communities, our broken down schools, our uh, dysfunctional social services to get to your your happy hunting grounds of mission. So I think in the first instance, we need to bring those together and take seriously, even as advocates for mission from Costa Rica, asking, what are you doing in your neighborhood? How are these principles you're learning here with us? How are you applying them in your neck of the woods? I think that's one piece. Another piece, I mean, the the woman who just, I can't stop seeing her face as you're asking the question is Esther Inostrosa, who is a woman lived in one of the most polluted cities in the world uh, in Peru, home of a large multi-metal smelter. And 97% of the kids had lead poisoning, right? So Esther knew the power of human relationship and she was convinced because she was a follower of Jesus Christ. If she could just share her story with other followers of Jesus Christ in another context, they would come together with her and we could work together and do something bigger than she could do from her community. And she was right. (laughs) I didn't believe it. You know, this was a, a, a struggle that happened for 10 years. And eventually the company was forced out a uh, new company came in, uh, lead, lead levels have, have dropped dramatically, a lot of good things happening. And in fact, two weeks ago, this case went to the Inter-American uh, Commission on Human Rights, uh, and we're waiting for their decision you know, to come back any, uh, probably in a couple of months. But um, that's how far it's gone because of the faith of a woman like Esteri Nostrosa, who she believed that we could become companions in God's mission. Mm-hmm. And when I think of the audacity of that faith, the unlikeliness that that would ever happen, and yet it did by God's grace, I just say, wow. I mean, she saw something clearly that I sure the heck couldn't see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think in, in the case of like a local mission focus, it's going to come through relationships. And so as you see that, not the inner circle of folks who travel and um, you know, participate in those more active ways, but people who give and pray and even lend their social capital say, well, I know a doctor who could help, or I know this particular professional or, or this service that could help you. I think by bringing an Esteri Nostrosa to your congregation, by connecting, using, you know, uh, Zoom worship and Bible study and uh, an interview like, you know, this, what, this kind of a podcast with an Estere Nostrosa. But that to me has been the most powerful uh, tool that God places in our at our disposal uh, to be able to link the lives. Because once I know Esther, then I know her two kids. Mm-hmm. Once I know her two kids, I'm thinking about lead in an awful different way. Right. And I come back to my kids. I would come back from La Arroya and I would shower twice before I go in and kiss my kids goodnight, Hmm. because I became so aware of what it was doing to Esther's kids. And then I was in the moral, I I couldn't just protect my kids. I had to protect hers too, because we're sisters and brothers in Christ. So I I do think that the gift to us, we've always known that mission is about human relationship. I think that is, that's the strongest instrument that God has given us to help open eyes, um, ourselves included. And so I will see the problem of, for example, in this city, uh, the problem of lead poisoned children. I leave that situation 
and I can't not do something about it. I can't not mm -hmm. accompany her. I can't not uh, get up out of my comfortable pew or, or safe home and walk with her. Though that exposes me, that takes me into uncharted territory. I'm scared to death. I don't know what's going to happen. That moment of vulnerability leads to a, a radical mutuality that we, we would, I mean, th those, these people, some of these folks 20 years later are still uh, working on this and won't, won't let go um, because their lives were changed in that, in that experience. I have a bit of a monologue, but I'm going to try to make it short because I want to respond to everything that you just said. So um, my first thought was Acts 1-8, of course, popped into my mind of going to Jerusalem, going to Judea, Samaria, and, and the ends of the earth. And of course, that is an and, not an or. And so when I came here to First United Methodist Church of Shreveport, it was very important. Like they had always had very much a large presence in the community because we are smack in the middle of downtown. So local missions had been a priority. So when they hired me on in 2013, it was the first big push for global missions. Um, and they hired a new local missions director nearly at the same time. So as we both came in, we both decided that the missions ministry here had to change. Like, what did we want it to be about? Uh, we, we, of course, the partnership word was being thrown around, but we we held tight onto relationships. What does it mean to live in relationships in our community and relationships with other people in the world? to the ends of the earth, if you will. And I, I've never been competitive about the numbers, though I will say local missions has almost double the amount of the budget that, that global missions does. But I think that that's wonderful because this is where we spend 90% of our time. This is where we are present. This is where we are 24 seven. Uh, we are a member of this community. But the way that we went about things, because we were previously acting in such transactional matter. Yes, we would, the people who came in our front door every day, we would try to get to know them. But what it became was how can we be companions to the hundreds of nonprofits that are in our town, each that are so specialized, they're so good at what they do. They, they've been to, they've been educated. They've been, uh, they are experts. There we go. There we go. I was coming around to a word. Uh, they are experts on what they do. Um, and we can't possibly meet all of the needs of our community, but we can be companions to those who are doing it really well. And how can we support them? And that ended up going into our global missions ministry. We're not going to go start projects and start a new community development thing in every country that we go to. No, there are people there that are doing really good things. They are experts of their community. And how can we be companions with them? And so that has been the overall missions umbrella for our church of this idea of companionship, this idea of walking alongside uh, those who are doing things very well and living into their calling and how can we support them live into their calling better. So I love what you were saying about that, that it can't be an or, it can't be local or global. It has to be both. It has to be a presence in the world because we're called to the whole table, not just to part of the table. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's great. I wanna change directions if I can. Because one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was reading through this book has to do with, at the beginning, you, you talk a lot about what you call selfie missions and the kind of shallow, self-centered, selfie, short-term mission experiences. And all of those criticisms that you bring up, I think, are, are warranted. How much do you think 
the the self emission phenomenon might be a symptom of the selfie church phenomenon, where what's happening in local churches is just as surface oriented and uh, self centered and shallow as those mission trip experiences can be. So instead of it being a super healthy tree with one rotten fruit, that is the the short-term mission experience, it's actually, there may be some problems in the tree and that's why it's bearing a rotten fruit. And if that's true, then might it be that these transformational experiences that people can have on short-term mission trips if we can figure out the right way to translate that back to the local church and and provoke transformation within the local church, then short-term missions, instead of being something that we should be running away from, which I think what a lot of people sort of, that's their reaction is, we don't want anything to do with that. Instead, it might be something that the church should be running towards so that the church can heal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about, on page 152, you refer to the structure of short-term missions as an unusual space of deep learning and personal transformation and powerful connectedness that can change the world. And I think you're right. But I think if it can change the world, well, then if we just reduce that from the world to the local church. Boom. Boom. <laughs> Thank you. No, no I mean... and. It, What's been really um, given me a lot of joy is to see, so a month ago, Bala and I were in Buffalo and a group of churches invited all of their local partners to come in the room. And we sat together and we talked about companionship, cultural humility and co-development. And it was, I mean, the place was on fire. People were saying, what if we had these relationships across city lines? I was just blown away because it allowed people to say, how do we, I mean, if we had the same honesty and vulnerability in our relationships in the church as they do down in the basement in our Alcoholics Anonymous group that's meeting in our church, then we're talking. I mean, I walk in the room and the first thing I do is confess my sins. I say, hi, I'm Hunter. I confess the deepest, darkest sin the, the thing that I don't want anybody in God's creation to know. And I, I put it on the table and you all look at me and you smile, you nod your head and say, hi, Hunter. Mm-hmm. We know, i.e., we know exactly who you are. We're in the same boat as you. Mm-hmm. Let's walk together. Mm-hmm. I have watched people for 20 years now being moved in indescribable ways in worship services here, people from churches in the United States who are spending time with us in Costa Rica. And it's just, it's amazing to watch. And when I read that section of your book, where you talk about that, the the vulnerability that comes with being part of a program like that, I just thought, that's it. It's in that setting, that worship setting where worship and prayer and song and all of that is happening on such a deep and vulnerable level that that's, I mean, maybe that's as close as we really get to sitting at the table that we're trying to get to is in those moments of complete vulnerability where no one has any status, 
There's no prejudice. There's no preference. There's no privilege. That's the table that we're trying to get to. And I think that's what a, a, a program like Alcoholics Anonymous does is it equalizes everybody. And that's what worship in some of these short-term mission contexts, I think does for people. So, and honestly, you know, more often than not, when I ask somebody at the end of the week before they leave, you know, Hey, what did you, you know, what was the best part of the week for you? Nine times out of 10, it was worship. It wasn't the concrete that they mixed. It wasn't, you know, whatever task, but it was that it was the worship. And, and it wasn't just because they knew the songs, um, it wasn't just because everybody, you know, it was a big cell. We're celebrating Jesus. That's what we do every Sunday. That There's that too. But I think there's something deeply spiritual and moving about being that vulnerable amongst people who you're also realizing, I don't understand a thing that they're saying. Um, culturally, this is not my place, but I can feel what they're feeling and that changes people's lives. We think about, I mean, that image of if we can frame our short-term mission experiences in terms of a pilgrimage, we, mm. we know about those liminal Absolutely. spaces, that they flatten social hierarchies. That's right. anthropologically speaking, that's what happens. And so on the road to Mecca, you, from the Sultan to the pauper, all are equal. They wear the same clothing. They engage in the same practices. They're, they're waiting on the next meal, looking for grace from people who will provide for them. I mean, all of those things, the shared vulnerability is very present mm-hmm. in, in pilgrimage. And so, I mean, what a great framing for what we're about in mission. Why can't that be the framing for what we're about in church? Yes. So instead of family reunion trips, I'm going to start calling them pilgrimages. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I had a conversation about this this particular bit uh, a few days ago with one of the pastors that I was with in Alabama, and we were talking about how challenging it is culturally to get people to open themselves up to that kind of experience in a worship setting when they get home because we were talking about how do you how do you transmit what people experience while they're on a short-term mission trip to the local church to the ones who didn't go and you know it's one thing you sort of expect like when your youth group goes that they're going to get up and they're going to talk about you know some really important stuff and you're really happy that they're feeling these things and starting to process some of these things at a young age it's easier to get a 16 year old to stand up in front of the church and do that than it is to get a 50 year old you know, it's hard to get the guy that's the CEO of a big company to stand up in front of the church and cry about how much this meant to him. So culturally, we have a lot of work to do in our local churches, I think, to teach people how to open themselves up to that same kind of vulnerability. How do we make the local church and and worship the kind of space that looks like uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where people are willing to just completely be laid bare in front of everybody else. I think that's a huge, huge obstacle. I, I agree with what you're saying, Will. I, I guess um, to me, there's a sense that what I would argue we have created forms of mission that keep us in the driver's seat. I'm passing out the freeze dried food, I'm bestowing benevolence. Uh, resources, charity, whatever it is. I'm usually in that, in, in the homeless, you know, 
providing a meal for folks living in homelessness, I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the safe side of the counter and I'm passing the meal on a tray over into, into that space. What if, it, it seems to me that for both the 50-year-old and the 16-year-old, the next step when we come back is to step back out. What, what we, got, we, we got off to that we, 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 we risked, we risked together. And so we developed deeper friendships. I had no idea I had so much in common with these people I've been sitting in pews with for all these years. You know, deep friendships come out of this being on the road together, uh, being in this, stepping into the liminal space together, facing the risks together. That, that, is, uh, that is, those are friendships that will last, you know, through, through to heaven. Um, so I, I think there's really something there. And I, I wish that we could um, think creatively together about taking the next steps. What are the next steps that folks can take? Uh, the, the different churches that I see really challenging themselves. They'll come back from a global or national mission trip. Maybe they go to Appalachia or the U.S.-Mexican border or South Florida. Then they come back. And if they can sort of channel that, that hunger to step back into that space, because I think it's really present in those first couple of months after folks get back, I think it dissipates. I think the embers cool um, as they're separated from each other. And, and we need to kind of stoke that fire, keep them back together and engage in another slightly risky experience. It's the very uncertainty. It's the very vulnerability that I experience that makes that experience so powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, because part of my problem that I continuously struggle with back and forth and back and forth is... I grew up in this world of going on international mission trips. I, I, I came to love a family in, in Mexico, but they're the reason why I think God cultivated this calling in my life. They brought it out of me and I, and I was able to explore that. And, and Will was going to Costa Rica with his church and, um, and that's where that seed was first planted with him and, and God cultivated and grew that. And so there's something about being out of your comfort zone, uh, something about being in close quarters with members of maybe of your church uh, and in a different culture and a different language where that vulnerability is so present that you're ripe for the molding that God can mold you and make you. But the flip side of that is then how do I not participate in such devastating practices that have happened through mission trip trips or short-term mission trips over how many ever years, how do I balance those two things so that I can continue to take members of my church so that they'll have these experiences and so that they'll get to know what it is like to be with a missionary or a community or um, the indigenous population of that community? How do I balance those two things? Well, Ashley, that's why that's why you're in my book. <laughs> right, on. right on. But I still have to, I still, I still, you know, I because I, I want to take groups of people. I tell people if they have to hold a hammer, then we're gonna go see Will so that they can they can hold that hammer. But at the same time, they're gonna get all of the other stuff so that they're gonna maybe understand when we come back what mission is all about. But the way you frame mission, I mean, what really attracted me to your research and, and the way that you do your work is you frame mission as how do we equip and empower these friends? Mm -hmm. These are leaders in their communities. What do they need? How can we come alongside them? Um, what are ways that we can support them and accompany them and, and, and amplify their voices? 
this is the last section of your book that I'm going to read today. Um, but it's, it's, I titled it Course Correction, and it's on page 132. And you said, rather than discard short-term mission trips that are often criticized as wasteful and ineffective, so everything that Ashley just said, she really wants to make sure they avoid, how can we re-engineer these trips to become a powerful space of mutual transformation that can actually change the world? And I think that's it. It's, like I said before, it's not about walking away from this. It's about adjusting the resources, the expectations, the energy, the all of those things in such a way that what we're cultivating, it's still life-changing and life-giving for everybody involved, but it's done in a way that's not leaving a trail of wreckage behind. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that it, it does strike me. Well, and, and the way I think both you and, and Ashley are, are, are working to, to make a short-term mission a transformational space in a mutual way. Um, There are a few programs in the church where a lay person who has no experience or inkling or or, or tendency toward leaning towards Mexico (laughs) will sign up and step into the unknown. I mean, they're putting their own money after this. I mean, there's the level of commitment for us to judgmentally say, oh, they're not doing it at a plus level. And so we won't recognize them. We won't, you know, honor them or respect what they're doing. It's, it strikes me that the church often is coming at leadership of the church with a lot of, um, uh, a lot of force with a lot of desire. They want to, they want to move forward. They want to get out into the world and, uh, short-term mission trips have been a way that they have found to do so. And so against the academics who've argued against it, against many church leaders who've argued against it, this is a populist movement and it's moving forward. And, you know, so maybe you like parts of it, not, I do think the, the opportunity for not, not just for short-term mission to be transformed, but for it to become a place at the table where actually we are, we're enabled to, to sit down with a people, not our own for maybe the first time in our lives, given the segregated nature of us communication patterns, residence patterns, school education patterns, et cetera. We, we don't sit at table with folks who are not like us, mm-hmm. full stop. Mm-hmm. Given that, it may be that that precious 10-day period is the only time in that person's year where they will experience this. Mm-hmm. And so who the heck are we as mission experts or scholars or whatever we think we are to look down our nose and say, no, 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 don't, don't do that. You know, it's like, I beg your pardon. Why don't you create a space, you know, improve the space, Mm. bring to it greater wisdom, other perspectives, strategies that will allow people to sit together and experience each other in deeper ways with increasing vulnerability and increasing transformation. I think that's that to me is that's really worth getting heads together and let's let's let's. prayerfully think through this and engage. And it may sound a little sort of lofty, but I think to some degree, that's, I mean, the whole reason why we're doing this podcast is to try and be a part of that. I mean, it's a, it's a gigantic hill to climb, but I think Ashley and I both in our different settings have seen what's not good, but we've also seen what's good. And, and if there's some way that just by putting this out there, 
And, and if it, you know, is part of that process for people reevaluating what, what it is that they're doing in their churches in mission, then that's the most we can hope for really. And um, continuing to look for ways to have those conversations with churches, with church leaders, either through this medium or through other mediums, but, but just to encourage people to do that work and to, like you say, improve those spaces. It, it doesn't mean I've had several people when I've talked about this podcast to them have, have sort of pushed back a little bit because they think what I'm saying is we need to just scrap everything that's ever been done before and do something entirely new. And that's not what it's about. It's, it's like you, it's a course correction and, and right. that's okay, but it's a big ship that needs to be have its course changed. And that takes an awful lot of energy and work and commitment and time and a lot of other things that we haven't even realized yet. But I definitely think you're onto something in terms of, so in the Buffalo conversation with, you know, um, citywide NGOs and their church partners, right? That's who was in the room. In some other spaces, we've had conversations and consistently folks say, you know, this book is is about mission, kind of. It's really about the church. It's really about yes. following Jesus in, yes. in his world. What you know, and, and I had not been prepared for that because I I'm a mission guy. That's what I've always done. That's the language I speak, etc. And so I was really surprised. I was taken aback by those comments. But I thought about it. What if our Christian education space? became a space of radical mutuality where teacher and students say together, I don't know the way, can you help me? And so we look to God in Christ, we look to each other for wisdom, and we start taking a step. And the road is made by walking, right? Mm -hmm. As the Spanish poet said, we we find our way by making the path. We start walking and this isn't the way we go. So we do a course correction and we find the way together. That to me seems really important. We need that in Christian education. We need that in governance of churches. We need that as we make financial decisions. Uh, all of those, all those spaces. Yeah. And in liturgy, I've asked several church leaders that I've been with before, like, how? Tell me a way that you think you could make mission part of your liturgy. Every you make room for so many other things. What's a creative way to make? your church's understanding and commitment to missional relationships part of your liturgy so that it's that much a part of your de- and it's a it's a it's a not an easy thing to do um but but i think there are ways so it should be part of everything yeah. god we don't have enough time we don't have enough time <laughs> there will be part two we can do can part there, two later can there be yeah. a part two Absolutely. <laughs> oh my god, i just have so many thoughts <sighs> Well, I was just going to say, I, I, listening to you all talk for a while now, um, what I keep coming back to is through mission, I've become the truest version of myself, um, the truest version of who God created me to be. So through these trips, through relationships and companionship with people all over the globe, including here in my hometown, through learning the act of humility in everything I think, say, and do, that is where I've learned who I am. And because of that, I can be the truest version of myself to everyone I encounter. And hopefully that brings it back around of they feel comfortable being that with me. And so if we can cultivate that in our church, if we can cultivate that in our local mission, if we can cultivate that in our global mission, then I think that that's 
one of the biggest pieces that will make that broken banquet whole again. Amen. Beautiful. I, I, I'm thinking about the, the idea of, of, of what it would look like in, say, worship, um, if we missionalized worship, if we led with vulnerability hmm. rather than professional acumen and accomplishments. And I mean, I really do think, uh, I mean, at least in our church bulletins, we put all the degrees of the person who's going to preach. We, you know, we, we, <laughs> we, 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 we genuflect at all the, the the power idols, right? Before we get to, and now this person will preach the word the word of God in Christ. <laughs> because we think that that's what allows us to deserve to be at the table, that we think that that makes us have a place there. But it doesn't, because if we're all equal and coming to the table, then then we don't need that. Right, hmm. right. But we're, we're convinced we've got those tapes in our heads that say... Um, You've got to qualify to get here. It's not mm-hmm. God's grace. God's grace is not enough. You've got to do your part. Yeah. I can tell you one thing you don't have to qualify for, and that's to have a podcast. <laughs> Thank you know, goodness. You, you used to have to earn your right to stand on a soapbox. Not anymore. <laughs> Just get a web it. address, a microphone, and Boom. let her rip. Yep. I love it. I love it. Well, Kudos to you all for, for tackling this. is It's a tough area because you get the, the haters on both sides. Um, and, you know, to, to be able to, to say, how can we transform this together, I think is really the, a critical question right now. Yeah. Be part of the solution. Yeah. Thank you so much for being a part of this with us, really. I, I've, I've said a couple of times to Ashley already, I think we're kind of punching above our weight, but you you are very generous with your time, and this has been a joy. And I would love to, I know we both would love to have you back again at some point. Um, I don't know if we could do an episode on each chapter of the book, if that would be asking too much of you. <laughs> or at but least the three stones, yeah. Or the three stones. We could do an episode per stone. Yeah, that's not too much, is it? <laughs> But no, it's been great. I've been so excited. Um, once I got through chapters one and two, uh, I've been really excited about having this conversation with you. And I'm so, so grateful for this resource that I get to encourage our partners to read. We really have enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the invitation and, and the chance to talk. I mean, these are really important things. And I think part of the church uh, opening itself up to get out of a funk that it's in has a lot to do with the things we're talking about. We usually ask the question at the end, is there anything else that you wish that we had asked you? You know, um, coming in, I, I wasn't thinking about boxing or weight punching or any of that stuff, but but I was thinking about fun factor. And I thought this is going to be one of the funner conversations that I've had. I'm sorry and to it, have disappointed you. <laughs> no, on the contrary, I was going to say, and, and thank you for that. This has been great fun. And I, I just, I appreciate that we've got a, this is so important and we can get so serious and so doggone self-righteous about it that I think, you know, a little laughter, a little levity, a little, you know, a little fun, I think is a great antidote to keep us, you know, with our feet on the ground. So thank you all for that. Well, we're good for a laugh anytime, Hunter. So anytime you want to come on back or anytime you want to talk off the podcast and uh, however we could work together in the future, gosh, would love it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you all for that. Really appreciate it. One more wire to move.
You're doing a great job, Will. Mm-hmm. Will's our producer and our editor and our number one liability. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.